Turn with me or listen on as I read. As the scripture reading, uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to the end of the chapter, as the sermon text solely verse, solely verse 14. And so at once I'll be expounding verse 14, but also introducing this, uh, this new section. Hear God's word. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will do, that I do not practice, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that is pre- that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to this most difficult text in Romans, we ask you that now through the preaching this and and, and sermons to come, that you would open it up uh, to the minds and the hearts of your people. And that together we might come to be able to say with Paul more than anything else, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, if we can do that, then we have succeeded. Open our eyes to the sinfulness of our own hearts, but also to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit to save and to sanctify us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might have noticed the title to the sermon is The I... In Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, one of the things that you notice as you read this passage, or perhaps if you didn't notice it, let me point it out to you. It is the prevalence of the word I. But I am carnal for what I am doing. I do not understand for what I will to do that. I I do not practice, but what I hate that I do and on and on. It goes uh, that way all the way uh, to the end. I thank God, verse 25, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. What we are analyzing, beginning at this point, and what I hope to do is to preach chapter 7, verse 14 in one sermon, which will also serve as a general introduction, and then verses 15 through 20, and then verses 21 through 25, Lord willing. What we are analyzing is the I of chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Uh, The question is, who is the I? Paul is obviously referring to himself, but in what state? That is the question that has, I won't say boggled the mind, but it has been a question which has perplexed expositors and Christians and theologians for ages. Uh, And so in that light, this is one of the more fascinating, but also one of the more difficult texts that we will face in Romans, and I would remind you of something that Martin Lloyd Jones said in uh, his sermons 
one of his sermons from Romans 7, especially with regard to this passage, beginning in verse 14, whatever view one takes, uh, he is bound to find disagreement, even in the church of God. Here is a matter which uh, divides the minds of men. And there are two main views. I want to begin by uh, analyzing or offering those two main views, who the I is in this passage. Uh, primarily, I would cite here the first view being that of Ritterboss, Herman Ritterboss. In his book, Paul, An Outline of His Theology, also he wrote a commentary on Romans. Uh, Ritterboss calls the man who is described here, whom Paul is describing, even as himself, as the man in, in sin, still viewed as under the law, experiencing utter defeat. Uh, and there's much to commend this to you if you read what he's saying. He is certainly describing his sense not only of struggle, but of failure and of defeat. And, uh, and, and Paul uh, has much to say about the man in sin who's under the law. The question is simply whether uh, this belongs under that rubric or under a different heading. There are important reasons for saying this is not the Christian position. When I say the man in sin, I mean the man who's under the law, the unregenerate man, they say. important. I'm not saying this, but they're saying this. You may have already guessed my view uh, from the prayer and the hymns. The reason, and I hope that you can appreciate the difficulty here, is that they are saying that Paul is saying things about himself that the Christian could never say. Things such as, I am carnal, sold under sin. Such as expressing these uh, incredible feelings of defeat and failure. Does that really match what Paul was describing in Romans chapter 6? Chapter 6, the new man who's victorious over sin, uh, over whom sin no longer reigns and has no dominion. Even, I I read it said, when he says, who, uh, is it who will or who can? Who will deliver me from this body of death? So they say a believer would never say that. He'd never say who. He would say Jesus can deliver me. Now, I'm trying to present this view as compelling as I can. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you held this view, although as best I can tell, knowing you all, I'm not aware of anyone who who holds this view. Uh, This is a view that became popular once again in the 20th century in the redemptive historical school. Uh, It's a view that you will find uh, widely held today, if you can believe it. It was also the view, this is something else that's a very strong recommendation of this view, it's, 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 it was the view of the ancient fathers. It was the view of the early church for centuries. And I must admit that the arguments which they present and which I've summarized are compelling. It is difficult to imagine the man Paul was just describing in chapter 7, and it, or in chapter 6, excuse me, in the beginning of chapter 7, now saying these things. Now lamenting the very things uh, it, they say that Paul, Paul claimed in chapter 6 were no longer true of him. Now, if the arguments were not compelling on the other side, you realize there would never be so much debate and disagreement among Christians. But the purpose, they say, of this section, verses 14 to the end, is for Paul to highlight the futility and the fruitlessness that was described in chapter 7, verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. He's describing the position of futility and ultimately of defeat and death. 
for the man in sin, the man under the law. Now, we already saw that chapter 7, verse 5 was then expounded in verses 7 through 13. I argue that here is a man who's under the law, the unregenerate man who's come to see his plight. He's on the cusp of conversion, but he's not quite there. He's awakened to his sense of sinfulness. He's about to be a Christian, but not quite yet. And so the argument goes, according to this view, that he simply carries the argument further into verses 14 to the end of the chapter. We're still looking at this man who's come uh, to see not only his sinfulness, but the result of his sin in his life. And then they claim that in chapter 8, Paul begins to look at the other side. The man in the spirit, the man who's experiencing victory. So all of chapter 7 experiencing defeat under sin, chapter 8 experiencing victory. And so they would say this is not a personal bit of biography. That's another important thing to realize. Instead, he is comparing two positions and he is assuming for the sake of argument one side in order to bring out dramatically the bondage to the law that this man is experiencing. He's answering the question posed, is the law sin in verse 7 or verse 13? Has then uh, what is good become death to me? Certainly not. He's answering that question by assuming one side, portraying the man in sin under the law dramatically as himself. And that is a valid form or method of argumentation. That's the one side. The other view is my own. I believe it is uh, the more widely held view, at least in this church. It was the view in the early church of Augustine. It seems that he began to break from the old view. It was also the view uh, of the reformers. It was the view of the Puritans. And it is a view which has, uh, since the 20th century, again, risen to prominence. Some of the greatest Puritan works were written with this view in mind. For instance, uh, John Owen's book, this book contains three books, but Indwelling Sin and Believers. And he talks about, uh, I'm using his language, the power and the efficacy of indwelling sin in the believer. And he takes as his text, Romans 7, verse 21, not verse 14, but from the same section. Now, I find it nearly impossible to accept the first view in light of that thought alone. What would become of the Puritan view? And I remain an admirer of the Puritans, not simply because I admire the Puritans, but there are good reasons for that. I think they were masters of the scripture. They were masters of the Christian experience. These men were on to something. I'm not prepared to say that they were wrong on this. But I would remind you that you will face difficulties, whatever view you take, because the subject itself is so difficult. It isn't just that this passage is difficult. It is difficult. But but realize why it's difficult, because Paul is describing something that is difficult. Something that is perplexing, and that is the reality of sin. Sin in a world that God has made in his very image bearers. How can one even express the reality of sin? Whether you take it as the man in sin or the man who is redeemed, either way. It is bound to be difficult to express. Now, how should I express this, it seems Paul is saying. And then he repeats himself over and over again. How can I make you understand? The view here is that Paul has transitioned, the second view, from the past to the present. And that's certainly true. Even the proponents of the first view have to agree to this. He was speaking in the past. I once was, I once was like this in verses uh, 7 through 13. But he transitions to the present. Now I am. I do. And so forth. And so now 
So the argument goes, he is expressing and he is confessing his ongoing struggle. As John Stott puts it, he's now an active combatant in the struggle. Whereas, and this is certainly true, in verses 7 through 13, he's expressing the reality of death. Sin killed me. But here he's saying, I have this awful struggle, but I'm engaged. It's his present, ongoing struggle now as a believer. Now as a man who's come out from under the law and he's under grace. He's full of the Holy Spirit and yet he's struggling. He's battling sin. Where does he find it? In himself. And as a result of this, he's vindicating the law. Just as the other side would say, the truth is either position, this is where you find yourself. The law is being vindicated. Is the law sin? No, it isn't. The trouble is myself. The trouble is sin. There is a third view. And I only mention it because so many of you are aware that I'm using Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons on this, uh, well, on the whole of Romans, not just this chapter. And some of you have confessed to me, you know, Lloyd-Jones' view seems somewhat confused, and it does. There are more than two views, by the way. In fact, there's more than three. But there's only three, I think, in the history of Reformed exposition. And Lloyd-Jones says something like this. It's neither. It's neither the regenerate man nor the unregenerate man. Now, how that is possible, I cannot say. But it, it seems, if, if you read him, uh, as though he's vindicating both positions. At times he says, you see, it can't possibly be the unregenerate man. And, and I agree with him. I smile and I nod. And then at other times he says, but you see, it can't possibly be the regenerate man. And I frown and I, and I, I disagree. I'll give you an example of what I mean. He says, who is it that can make such a statement about himself? In the first place, I assert that no unregenerate person can make or ever has made such a statement about himself. To me, this verse alone is sufficient to put right out of consideration the suggestion that this passage describes an unregenerate person. All right, I agree with that. This leads to the next question, he says, is this then a description of the regenerate man? Here again, I have no hesitation in asserting equally strongly that it is not and that it cannot be so. I assert that it is neither the unregenerate nor the regenerate. Again, he says. The unregenerate never speaks in this way. The unregenerate man never condemns sin in the way this man does so, who says, what I do, I do not allow, and so on. What then of the regenerate? Well, he says, the regenerate man does not speak of himself as a man who lives frustrated, defeated, a life of failure. So it's neither. What is his position? Well, it seems that he's saying, if you go on, uh, and I won't read any more, that he's saying that here is a man who is unregenerate and yet enlightened. He's realized his true state. He is coming to see his need of salvation. The trouble arises over this statement more than any. Verse 14, I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, that's not the first statement we find. We find, for we know that the law is spiritual. Of course, we know this. We know the law is spiritual. He's just said so in verses 7 through 13. That has been established beyond dispute. The trouble, therefore, in keeping the law is not the law. It is that I am carnal, sold under sin. So it is clear once more that his overarching desire is to vindicate the law. 
and to assign the true blame where it really belongs. Namely, with myself. Myself is the sinner. Notice the contrast of this verse. We know that the law is spiritual. But in total and dramatic contrast, I am carnal, sold under sin. Could you imagine a more powerful refutation of the claim, is the law sin? No, the law is in sin. What's sinful is me. The law is wonderful, it's beautiful, it's holy, it's just, it's good, it's spiritual. But I find something else in myself. And yet, let us confess in acknowledgement to these other views, the first and the third view, the difficulty of suggesting that a Christian could ever say this about himself. I am carnal, sold under sin. Especially, let us confess how difficult it would be for Paul to do so here, given his many emphatic statements seemingly to the contrary in chapters 5, chapter 6, and the beginning of chapter uh, 7. Paul here is the mature believer. Some say perhaps an immature believer who's just been born again. He could say that. But could Paul at the height of his theological expression and of his preaching ministry here in Romans, could he actually say that about himself presently? I'm admitting the difficulty. I'm acknowledging the strength and the weight of the other side. And yet I am saying, I really am saying at the same time that Paul really was doing so. Paul really was saying, I am carnal, sold under sin. The apostle, the mighty preacher, the mature Christian for these reasons. It is true, Paul is expressing a contradiction in our lives. He is describing the inevitability of sin. He's saying that no, no matter how long I live and no matter how long you live as new men and women in Jesus Christ, you will go on sinning. And he presents this in terms of an ongoing conflict. And in the midst of this conflict, as he examines his own sinfulness, he admits his sense of defeat even. I am prepared even to admit that. A sense of failure, a sense of defeat. Oh, the first who says, I've got you. Well, I'm not prepared to agree. I would argue that this belongs in, in the, the category of confirmation. I remember in seminary, I didn't read this. This was something that happened in a classroom and it stuck with me. Dr. Gaffin, I'm sure he says it in a book somewhere, but I remember him saying, arguing, even though he came out of the redemptive historical school, arguing for the, the second view, the historical view of the Reformed Church. And he said he offered many arguments in favor of the second view, but ultimately he said, Everything that Paul says rings true in the experience of a believer. That's what stuck with me. When, when Paul is expressing this struggle and even the sense of failure and defeat, we, we relate to him here. We, we are able to say, and I don't know any Christian who reads this and uh, doesn't say. You know, I know exactly what he's talking about here. Well, we read chapter 6 and we agree. I don't want to say that he's undoing what he said in chapter 6. Of course, the man, the new man in Jesus Christ is a man who is no longer under the dominion of sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you if you are a believer. And yet it isn't as though you stop sinning. You still find sin which is present in your flesh. Paul even says so in chapter 6. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Yes, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Verse 11. That is the inner man. But, but don't let sin reign in your, outer, in your outer man, in the body of sin. Why is that? Because sin is still there. That's what he's expressing now. Yes, I've been made new inwardly. 
And to a very large degree, certainly inwardly at least, I am aware of this sense of overwhelming victory. And yet, there is still this ongoing conflict. Why? Because sin is dwelling in my flesh. And so what I find is the presence of this contradiction in my own existence. And what I'm saying is that the experience of believers confirms this. It rings true. That's my first argument. The ongoing conflict is the experience of every believer. My second uh, argument is that Paul is saying things. Now, I just read, I read Lloyd-Jones saying this. Of course, he said the opposite as well. But he's saying things that the unregenerate man could never say. And this is perhaps the strongest argument. The man in sin, the man under the law. As I say, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones even admits this. I read to you that quote. Now, what I'm saying, what I'm referring to is when he says that he hates the bad and he loves the good. I agree with I agree with the law in the inward man. I desire to do it. But what I find is this contrary principle or law in my members carrying me along where I don't want to go. And so it's this sense of conflict. But but the conflict is between uh, the sinfulness of his flesh and his inward desire to do the good. And the fact that he finds this contrary principle in his members or in himself grieves him greatly. Now, that is never true of the unbeliever. He is not aware of this dilemma. I just read to you in Romans chapter 8 where he, where he says that the unbeliever, the man in the flesh, is, he is at enmity with God. He cannot please God. He never desires to do so. There is no sense of conflict. There's no sense of the hatred of sin or the, the desire to do the good. He's a man who loves to sin and he lives to sin. And he's always thinking about it. He wants to sin more and more all the days of his life. If you remember, we read about that at the end of Romans chapter 6. That is... That is what the unbeliever is like. The unbeliever, I say again, isn't aware of his dilemma, but the Christian is. There is an honest assessment here in Romans chapter 7, which only the believer is capable of. And there is an honesty about these verses which is compelling, and which I find to be a compelling argument in favor of the second view. But then the third argument is this, that the way sin is described as, as a force from which he longs to break free, is perfectly consistent with the prior teaching. There is no contradiction between chapter 7 and chapter 6. This is the strongest uh, argument, so the other side says, that Paul is flatly contradicting himself. No, he isn't. I admit once more that verse 14 presents the greatest difficulty, that a believer could say, I am carnal, sold under sin. But later verses make clear what Paul means. He is considering himself as a whole. I, me. And he's more than a spirit. He's more than he is inwardly. Though that is the greater part. And as a, as a complete entity. He's not only spiritual but he's fleshly. The fleshly part remains. There remains in him. There remains in me. I, myself. Just as there remains in you. If you are a new creation in Jesus Christ, a sinful component of your being. And the Christian cannot consider himself, the I, the me, apart from this sinful element of his existence. It is part of who he is. It's part of who you are. You are a sinner. Even if you are born again. And it is against this which he must contend. The sinful part of himself, which he calls the flesh. 
Yes, it is true that the Christian is no longer in the flesh, nor does he walk or live according to the flesh, but there remains in him a fleshly part where sin dwells, or he calls it the body or this body of death. In chapter 6, verse 12, he says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, or he calls it your members. In verse 18, Paul says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Me considered as a fleshly being, nothing good. Verses 22 through 24. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. Which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you notice the duality? He sums it up in verse 25. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. I as uh, an individual, as a person, am composed of two parts. There is me considered inwardly, but there is also me considered outwardly. And this falls in line with the earlier teaching. For as I said, uh, if you look at chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, he says, Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. But don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Inwardly renewed, outward still, I find the presence of sin. And even at times, the dominion of sin. And so, what Paul is doing here, if we think about the flow of the argument, is that he's emphasizing the other side. In chapter 6, he's emphasizing the aspect of inward renewal. The spiritual aspect. And he'll return to that in chapter 8. But in this intervening period, he is saying that that isn't the full story. That isn't the full truth about myself if I am a believer. There is still, I find, this ongoing battle. There is still the power of sin in, in my flesh. Or as Owen says, the power and the efficacy of indwelling sin. And what a menace that is to the believer. What a nuisance it is as we go on with our lives. And how we long to break free. This is, I would say, the greatest burden that the Christian carries by far. Not the old man. You sometimes find the old Puritans, whom I love, and I'm prepared uh, to disagree with them here, saying, we're caring about the old man with us. No, we're not. The old man is dead. He's been crucified. But we are caring about the flesh, the body. And there we find that sin dwells. It exists. And it exerts this awful influence even over the new man. And it brings about a great deal of sin in our life. This indeed is the Christian's greatest burden. And is Paul not here saying something that we have all said and that we've all felt? That I am a sinner. That I am utterly sinful. Yes, I'm born again. I don't doubt it. And I'm going to heaven. Jesus Christ has saved me. The spirit of God dwells in me. And yet I say of myself, I am carnal, sold under sin. I am amazed at myself. I do what I do not want to do. And what I want to do, I do not do. What Christian has not expressed with Paul here this longing for deliverance from what? From this bitter conflict in which he is engaged. With whom? With himself. Even this sense of defeat under the power of sin. Are any of you prepared to tell me that you have never cried out to God under the sense of failure and defeat in the face of sin? Or have you not cried out to God desiring to be rid of the body of sin? 
to be unclothed with this sinful flesh and to be further clothed with the resurrection body, free of sin. Is that not the desire of every believer? And do we really find any difficulty in seeing Paul saying this here? And then in the face of this, going on with this man's experience, to rejoice all the more in the gospel of grace. Thanks be to God, you see, at the pinnacle of his sense of defeat. And this is how I answer them. When they say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? What Christian would ever say this? They say, who? Why would he say who? Well, he doesn't leave it there, does it? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, in the same breath, the the name of Jesus is named. This is uh, the voice of the believer speaking. Thanks be to God. And I would argue that this utterance, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That that expression. Has far greater rhetorical force. When it is uttered. By a believer. Not by an unbeliever. Well. That leads me now as. The closing thought. To seek the true exposition. Of these two phrases. And again I confess the difficulty. In doing so. Of of saying that the believer. Paul would say, I am carnal, sold under sin. I, I, I agree. It's easier just to say, okay, that's the unbeliever. That's the unregenerate. You've resolved the difficulty. At least for one verse, you've resolved the difficulty. The first of these phrases is, I am carnal. And as we've already seen, the true exposition of this comes out in verses 15 and following. Paul is not saying that I'm in the flesh. He'll say in chapter 8, the man who's in the flesh cannot please God. He's not saying that. Nor is he saying, I'm living according to the flesh. Nor is he saying, I'm sowing into the flesh. These are all saying, all, all things Paul says the believer must not do and cannot do. But he is saying that the flesh is part of me. It's part of me. It's part of who I am. I am fleshly. If we are to look at Paul's theology more broadly, this would uh, be under the rubric of the flesh-spirit dichotomy. This is a common thought in Paul. The duality in the believer between the flesh and the spirit. And it is this, the presence of both in him, that is the source of the ongoing conflict for the Christian. We've already looked at this uh, in chapter 6. It comes out again in chapter 8. And I think the strongest confirmation comes in chapter Uh, Five of Galatians, verse 17, he says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's in the same person. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. You see him describing the same conflict. Oh, the spirit is in me. He's at work. He's leading me into all manner of righteousness and fruitful living, the fruit of holiness. And yet I find in me this contrary principle keeping me from doing the very things I wish to do. The flesh is rising up in opposition to the spirit. Where? In myself. And so here as in Galatians 17, Paul is referring to the carnal element of himself, which remains, I am carnal. And against which he himself must go on contending all the days of his life until he puts away the body of sin and death. Again, verse 23 is the true exposition. I see another law in my members warring against the law Of my mind. But then there is this other phrase. I am sold in bondage to sin. Which is the greater difficulty. 
the man who isn't under sin is suddenly saying, I'm sold in bondage to it. But again, it's clear that Paul is talking about the fleshly part of himself. Verse 18, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. He's talking about the fleshly part of himself. And what what do we have to say about the flesh? Well, it's in bondage to sin. In other words, the flesh considered as itself, and this will come out more clearly in the verses to follow, is hopeless. The flesh is in bondage to sin. It cannot and it will not be redeemed until the resurrection. It's irredeemable. It is dying and it will die. And it is there that sin dwells. And it is there that we find this constant, persistent menace to ourselves. And it is the opposition to the spirit. Sin dwells in the flesh, Paul says, verse 20. Sin dwells in me. Verse 23. Or verse 21, excuse me. Evil is present with me, within me or with me. And verse 27, that it, or verse 23, that is, he says, in my flesh. Well, that isn't verse 23. What verse is it? Uh, verse 18. Verse 24, the body of death. It needs to be delivered, Paul says. Who will deliver me from it? Thank God it will be delivered. Verse, 20, uh, verse, uh, verse 11 of chapter 8. He not only says in chapter uh, 8, verse 10, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. That's the present state. The body is not yet redeemed. It's dead spiritually. But he goes on to say, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Yes, the body in which sin dwells will be redeemed too. The question, who shall deliver me, will be answered. Jesus Christ will in the resurrection. But until then, until we put away this body of death and we put on the body of the resurrection, the fleshly part of me, which is me, it's my true self. It's who I am, or at least it's part of me. I am carnal, sold under sin. It remains under sin. It remains under its power. It remains evil itself. And so I must go on contending against it. Such things are difficult to express, admittedly. But still I wonder again, what Christian cannot express them? What Christian has not expressed these things about himself? What Christian finds difficulty offering assent to these words? I would argue that against the redemptive historical school, that it might be easy to argue against it in the academy, in the library with your books. But what man engaged in this battle with himself and his own sense of sin? What man has any difficulty agreeing with what I've said? That Paul himself was uttering this about himself, even as he wrote this epistle. He's not talking about the unbeliever. The unbeliever hasn't any idea what the Apostle Paul is talking about. But when the Christian reads this, he says, that's me. That's exactly my own experience, my own burden, my own longing for deliverance, even from what? From myself. I want to get rid of this sinful body, if only that I could live a life to God fully and freely forevermore. 
I am aware constantly of this contradiction in my own existence. Just as soon as I begin to worship God, I find that this contrary opposing principle rises up every time. I wake up, I want to pray to God. My mind is flooded with ideas of other things to do. I seek to praise Him on the Lord's day. Uh, Blasphemy occurs to my heart. On and on we go. There is always in me this contrary principle. And that contrary principle is called sin. But that isn't the full story. Not even from the standpoint of Romans chapter 7. Oh, this same man, aware of his own sense of defeat and failure, crying out under the power of sin, is able to say, but thanks be to God for his own son, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he is able to deliver us. That he has delivered us on the inner man. And that one day, very soon, he will deliver even the outer man. Transforming our bodies to conform unto his own glorious body. Where there will be no sin. And there will be no contradiction. Yes, the believer, even in his worst moments. And his greatest sense of defeat. Even he, in that moment, is able to cry out. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. My question to you is. Do you thank God? Do you know what it is to be a sinner? Yes, but do you thank God? And for what reason do you thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord? Amen. Let us come now to the table. Luke chapter 22, when the hour had come, he sat down with the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Well, I think the application... That the Lord's Supper presents immediately following on the, the, the sermon is obvious. At least I would hope it's obvious. Why do Christians need grace? Why do Christians need uh, to pray, forgive us our, our sins, even as we forgive our, or our debts, rather, as we forgive our debtors, if we've really been forgiven? It's because uh, even up to this very moment, we are aware of this ongoing contradiction in our existence. We are aware of the presence of sin. We are aware of the fact that inwardly we've been delivered, but outwardly there is still this uh, this ongoing bondage to sin, that the flesh remains under sin, uh, that there is still sin which dwells in me, myself, 
and that I come to God with defiled hands. Now, one of the great questions that has been asked through the centuries and no one, no one has offered a satisfactory answer is why on earth does God do that? Why does he only partially deliver us, but leave us in this state of sin and conflict and even at times of bondage? And the only answer which anyone has ever been able to give, uh, which made any sense at all, is uh, because it best serves to magnify his own glory. That's why. And, and beyond that, well, we leave it to him. And we're left in the position of Paul here saying, I don't understand myself. I, 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 I inwardly, I want to keep God's law. Inwardly, I delight in it, yet I go on sinning. How can I account for that? I agree with everything he said in Romans chapter 6. It's true of me. I've reckoned it as true of me. And yet the battle persists and I keep on sinning. Well, that is exactly why the believer needs grace. He needs grace mediated to him uh, week by week in Sabbath worship through the preaching, through the singing and through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's for weak and needy sinners. Yes, Christians, Christians who are aware of their sinfulness, Christians who long uh, for a greater measure of deliverance even now and Christians who long to be delivered in the age to come, in the resurrection, where there will be no sin and there will be no conflict. Well, I say to you, if that's your desire, then the Lord's Supper is for you. That's my invitation to all who are truly saved. My invitation is uh, come unto Jesus and receive from him waters which cannot be bought, but which are offered freely. But to the one who has no such awareness of conflict and has no such awareness of this longing and desire to be made better and to be made perfect at the end of the age, then I say, you must not come. I am warning you not to. I am fencing the table and I'm telling you not to. And so I invite the believer in sin to come. But I tell the unbeliever in sin not to come. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we ask you that by this means, grace would be mediated to, to guilty sinners. Further grace, greater grace. Take us beyond, O oh Lord, where we've been already. We long to make greater advancements in the Christian life. We long to be progressing. We long to thank you more and more for the deliverance that is found in Jesus Christ even now. And as, as we partake not only in Romans 7, but even now of the Lord's Supper, we look forward uh, to seeing the great things that you will do at this church and in our lives. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.